So on the cross, Jesus endured the same pain that anybody else would have endured when they went to the cross. Uh, His being God didn't mean that he suffered any less pain. He suffered the the same pain, the same shame, the same exposure that anyone else would have have suffered. And and the cross was designed to, to bring the person who was executed to their lowest and most humiliated just before they were snuffed out. And so Jesus, like anyone else who was crucified, which many criminals were, hung on that cross, but still, even though he was being crucified innocently, even though it was unjust that he was there, while he was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in Matthew 27, some of those who didn't know what they were doing were there mocking Jesus in his suffering. And we'll see that not only did they not know what they were doing, but they didn't know what they were saying. Because the words that they spoke about Jesus at the cross in mockery were actually words that were true. They were the words that D.A. Carson in his book Scandalous calls the ironies of the cross. That the words that they spoke to mock Christ while he hung on the cross are words that we speak in truth to worship him. The things that they saw as shameful in Jesus are things that we see today as glorious. The things that looked like total failure to them are things that we see as complete victory. So look first in Matthew 27, verse 27, where they mock his claim to be king. It says that, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, kings during Jesus' days on earth were a lot different than kings in our day. Today, most kings have very little power. They're just really figureheads in some kind of constitutional monarchy, and they can really only go so far. They can only do what the people allow them to do. But in Jesus' day, there were no constitutions. There was only unlimited power for the king. The king wasn't a politician. He reigned. He ruled. He did what he wanted to do. He called all the shots. That was the definition of what a king was. And everybody else, they were his subjects. They were the weak ones, and he was the dominant ruler. So here's Jesus, who who nearly a week earlier had uh, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. People were bowing before him. They were yelling out, Hosanna. They they were doing what everybody expected the crowds to do when the king came into, into Jerusalem. He came in on a donkey, just like the prophet Zechariah said the king would. He was clearly making a claim that he was the king of, of the universe. But here's the king hanging on the cross, the man who claims to be this powerful, and he's dying the death of a criminal. 
He's being brought all the way to the bottom. He's being humiliated. He's, he's made ashamed, and he's being killed by the people that he would have claimed to rule over. So they looked at him, and he thought, this guy can't be a king. I mean, he certainly can't be a victorious one. If he was a king, he was a failed one. He was an ousted one. He couldn't have been a real king, so they mocked him. And mockery probably wasn't a normal part of normal crucifixions, but Jesus was a high-profile case. So a whole battalion of soldiers lined up to mock this one who claimed to be the king. Now remember who he is. Jesus is God. And he never ceased to be God. He's the one who not 40 years before this was worshipped by legions of angels. And here he is being ridiculed by a battalion of soldiers. In verse 28, they put a scarlet robe on him, which is how they dressed him like royalty to mock him. And this is the same one that Isaiah, when he had a vision of God, he saw him with this, this, the train um, on his robe that filled the temple with glory. And Isaiah fell down and bowed and said, I'm undone. I'm an unclean man. He saw the righteousness and the holiness of God when he saw the, the garments of God in, in his vision in the Old Testament. And here's that same God who has laid aside those garments And now he's allowing people to mock him by putting a scarlet robe on him. It says they put a crown of thorns on his head. Thorns on the vines in Israel were probably a few inches long, and they beat it into his head, all to mock this guy's claim that he was any kind of king at all. What they didn't realize was that king that they or the crown they were putting on him was a kingly crown. It was the crown that crowned the greatest king of all kings. The one who came to be victorious over everybody. um, The one who came to really rule and to really reign. So they, they mocked Jesus as the king on the cross. But we worship him today as king because of the cross. Next they go on and they mock his claim to be able to tear down the temple. In verse 38, it says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So these witnesses come forward and they, out of context, recount some of Jesus' words where he had claimed that he would, if the temple was torn down, he would build it up again. But he made that claim in John chapter 2. Uh, he had just flipped over the tables in the temple. He, he had caused a huge scene. He, he was talking about the temple like it was his father's house. And then John two eighteen it says, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This really seemed like a totally outlandish claim for Jesus to make, that they could tear down this temple and that he would build it again. And this was before the days of reality shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, where you you tear down a house and build the whole thing again in a week. Um, In their day, it to build a building, especially a building the scope and size of the temple, was such a long-term project that in almost all cases, the architect of the project never lived to see that project completed. 
When big buildings like that were being built, they took forever. They took generations for them to be built. And so here comes Jesus into the temple, and he says, tear down this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. That's an absolutely outlandish claim. So they come, and they see Jesus hanging on the cross, powerless and weak, and they say, that's the one who claimed that he could rebuild that temple in three days. But what they were mocking him for, we worship him for. And in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God came and met with people. You would go to the temple to pray. You'd go to the temple to offer a sacrifice for sins. And at times, God's presence would come and show up at that temple in a very tangible way. And because of who Jesus was and what he was doing on the cross to bridge that gap between God and man, he was establishing himself as that new temple, that new place where people could meet with God. And even though they were tearing down his body, three days later, he would rise from the dead. So the people are mocking him, saying, he said that he would tear down the temple and then raise it up again in three days. He claimed to have so much power, and look at him now. But little did they know that his power was on full display. He was demonstrating the power to not love his own life, the power to allow people to torture and kill him, to lay down his life for us. When he was on the cross, the temple was being torn down for us. And three days later, it was rebuilt when Jesus rose from the dead. This says something significant about the power of Jesus and how it works. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, it says, But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So great rulers have power and authority, and they can tell an awful lot of people what to do, but Jesus says the greatest is the one who serves. And the greatest way to serve is by laying down your life for those you love. And so here's Jesus, that they mocked his claim to be powerful, but in reality, he was showing his power, and he was most powerful in his weakness. And by the way, as Christians, we are too. We follow this Jesus who saved people by dying for them. Sometimes we think we'll save people by shoving our message down their throats, by beating them up. But Jesus saved people, yes, by by speaking words of truth, but then by serving with everything he had. Not with manipulation, not with force, but by giving his life. And as Christians, as people who follow him, yes, we speak words of truth. Uh, We do speak the words that, that convey the gospel. But we also do radical acts of love to follow our Savior and and show how he loves. So they mock him as king, not knowing that he was the king, and today we worship him as king. They mocked his claim to be able to build the temple, or to tear down the temple and build it up again, when in reality he was doing just that, being the temple that was torn down and built up again. And they mocked his claim to be able to save others when he couldn't save himself. Look at verse 41, it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe him. When you were on a cross, there was no hope of getting off. 
I mean, the, the cross was to, to torture you and to kill you. It was to exert maximum pain and then to wipe you out. And it's easy for us 2,000 years after the cross with, with lots of exposure to Christianity to see the cross as this great symbol of faith. But in Jesus' day, the cross didn't have that meaning yet. It was an object of horror. They had the crosses stand outside the city. They, they weren't on the rooftops of beautiful buildings. You didn't want them anywhere near your kids. You didn't want your kids to see that because of the horror. They weren't objects of beauty. They weren't decorations. They weren't jewelry. But they were methods of torture and execution that had been developed over centuries by the Romans to inflict maximum pain and maximum shame. If a criminal was condemned to be crucified, he'd be bit, beaten be stripped naked, he'd be nailed to the cross to hang in agony for hours, sometimes they hung for days, and he would suffocate under his own weight. His only hope was the relief that would come at death. And for Jesus, though he hung there for hours, the the experience was no different. He didn't use the fact that he was God to diminish the pain, he didn't have some miracle morphine running through his veins. He experienced it all, and people mocked, and they said, here he is on that object of horror and shame, and he's the Savior. He saved all these people. He healed blind people so they could see. He healed the deaf. He raised the dead. But none of that could possibly be true because he can't even save himself. And in a sense, it was true. He couldn't save himself. But it wasn't that he didn't have the ability And Jesus never ceased to be God. He could have called any of those angels who had worshipped him before the foundation of the world to to come and and rescue him off that cross. He could have gotten down. He, He didn't have to die. So he could have saved himself in that sense. But Jesus knew that if he saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. Because the death on the cross was where Jesus made the great exchange. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our death that was all put on him and then all of his righteousness and life was given to all of those who would believe. And if he hadn't died, yeah, he would have saved himself, but he wouldn't have been the savior. And these mockers thought a savior can't die. But Jesus knew he couldn't be a savior unless he died. But as they mocked Jesus, they spoke some truth, but they knew not what they were saying. Notice in verse 42, they say, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. But little did they know that if he came down from the cross, they would have had nothing to believe in. They would have been able to, for a moment, acknowledge his power as the true king, but then they would have been hopeless. Because if there was no sacrifice for sin, if the Son of God didn't give his life for us, there never could have been a relationship with that king. There could only be awe and fear in waiting for his judgment. They said that they could only believe if he came down from the cross, but he was dying so that they could believe. So they mocked the king that we worship as king. They mocked the one who claimed to be able to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, even though he was the temple being torn down and rebuilt in three days. They mocked the one who couldn't save himself after saving others. We worship him for not being able to bring himself to save himself because he was saving others. Then they mocked his trust in God 
who just wouldn't save him. Verse 43, it says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. When they mocked him and they said he trusts in God, what they actually meant was that his trust in God couldn't possibly have been valid. He claimed to trust God in his lifetime, but here he was in his death praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So had he given up his trust in God? I mean, there's no doubt that he was in agony. This was agony that extended far beyond just the physical agony of the cross, which was huge. But he was losing, while he was on the cross, the closest of all possible relationships, humanly speaking. I mean, if you think about the most love that you could experience for someone, as close as you could possibly be, the kind of love that a husband has for a wife and then then they're married for for 60 years together, the kind of love that just joins you together, which is why so often we'll, we'll hear stories where an elderly couple, one of the couple dies, and then the other who was in good health previously dies shortly afterwards because they were just so connected they were, they were so one that the, the agony of being separated wasn't even something that they could physically bear. So the closer the relationship, the more painful the, the loss is when that relationship is severed. And here's Jesus hanging on the cross in the closest of all possible relationships was being severed. From eternity past, in perfect harmony with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly together, perfect love, no division be- between them, no, no error between them at all, no disagreements, uh, no fights, no arguments ever, nothing but perfect love forever. And here's Jesus being forsaken by his father. So the pain was tremendous. He lost the, the closest of all those relationships. So he was definitely in despair. But even in all of that, he did trust God. Because he was quoting from from Psalm 22. Now, I'll read Psalm 22 for us tonight to, to reflect on what Jesus was going through on the cross. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This psalm was written by David to express incredible pain in the dark night of his soul. But it also expressed trust that God would deliver him. So Jesus on the cross is praying, and and he's he's praying, God, why have you forsaken me? But he's quoting from this psalm where, where the psalmist is forsaken by God, but then at the end, he's delivered by God. Which makes no sense at all for someone to be hanging on a cross where they're going to be snuffed out, they're going to be wiped out. How could they ever express any kind of hope at all that God would deliver them? Because you don't get delivered from death. Except this time. Because this time, though Jesus was forsaken by God and he suffered the agony of the severing of the closest of all possible relationships, three days later, he rose. And it turned out his trust in God was valid after all. And God didn't ultimately, finally forsake him. God raised him again. So the thing that they mocked him for is something that we worship him for. So for us tonight, the big question for all of us is, is have we received the gift that this king gave us? And the reason they didn't think he was giving a gift was because they thought a king would come to bring a military salvation. That he'd come in on his donkey, he would overthrow his enemies, and then he would rule and reign and give them power and money, and it just wasn't what they wanted. But he came to bring a bigger salvation than that. On the cross when he died, he conquered Satan and sin and death. He absorbed the wrath of God that should have been ours. He absorbed hell for us so that we could be free from that punishment, so we could be free from that future. And because he rose again, we know that what he did on that cross paid the price for us so that one day we could rise with him. He's offered a more significant rescue to all of us, and it's a rescue from Satan's sin and from death itself. Because he died, because he saves, we can turn to him and have everlasting life. We can receive that free gift. And we receive it not by working ourselves, because he's the king who came to conquer. He's not the one who who came and told us how to go out and conquer. He came, and he legitimately did conquer. He did die for us to pay the price for our sin. He did rule. He did reign. He did rise again. He did all the work. And he offers it to us as a free gift, a free gift that's received by faith. 
But faith isn't just acknowledging him in our heads. It's not just checking off on a box that I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was the son of God. It involves repentance, which is a genuine turning. A turning from sin, turn from selfishness, turn from unbelief, turn from whatever it was that was driving you before, and turn to trust in Christ. Trust in his death and burial and resurrection for you. Cry out to him, believing the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus makes a promise that of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. He will forgive. He will receive you. And we know that because he conquered. He conquered the grave. He rose again so that we could have everlasting life. And for Christians, the reality of of this cross is an occasion for us to confess our sins. Because as we look to Jesus hanging on the cross, we know that he had to die. Our sins were that bad that he had to come and die for them. But at the same time, it's an opportunity to celebrate the fact that he did die for them. That he did pay the price. In fact, in a moment, while the choir sings the next song, we will be inviting anyone here who is uh, a repentant Christian, someone who has turned from sin and trusted in Christ and is repenting of sin now, uh, to take the Lord's Supper with us. And uh, the Lord's Supper is, is open to all who believe in Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do need to be a believer in Christ who is confessing your sin, but also saying that Jesus and Jesus alone is your hope for forgiveness and everlasting life. So in the front of the room and in the back of the room and up in the balcony in the four corners, there are tables where there's the bread and the cup. And during the next song, we would encourage you to quietly be confessing your sin. And whenever you would like, you can come and take the bread and the cup back to your seat. Take them at your seat, reminding yourself of the Lord's death until he comes back and rejoicing in the fact that what he did for you on the cross was enough. So we have a marvelous Savior who came and gave himself, and and many mocked him, but they knew not what they were saying. What they're saying was true. He is a king, and he does save. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we come before you tonight, and we are in awe of the gift we have in Christ. We're in awe of your Christ, of your cross. We're in awe of your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, tonight we do confess our sins to you. We confess that we live so often for other things. We treat other things like they're ultimate, like they're the most important. We're driven by so many things that that are just not Christ. And, Lord, in many ways in our hearts we're still looking for other saviors. But, Jesus, as we look at your cross tonight again, I just pray that you would drive home to our hearts the message that you are the Savior that you are good, that you are enough for us, and that there is no other king that we should look for, there is no other thing worth living for. There is no greater joy than the joy of following Christ. And Lord, tonight, as, as your Christians take your supper, I pray that we would do so celebrating your death and resurrection on our behalf, confessing our sins, and that we would do so in confidence that you have paid the price and that you are enough for us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Anytime during the next couple songs, you can take the Lord's Supper.